Welcome back to the Lowdown Podcast. Sarah, who are we talking to today? Well, Alex, today's guest has a super interesting career that you'll definitely want to hear more about, especially if you are a Law & Order SVU fan. Which I am. Me too. I mean, isn't everyone? This woman is also a recipient of Sigma Kappa's Colby Award, which is the highest honor an individual member can receive from our organization. We do want to warn our listeners that due to the nature of Kelly's job in dealing with sex and human trafficking, some of what we discuss may not be suitable for all listeners. With that being said, keep listening to hear from Kelly Harrison, the real-life Olivia Benson. You're listening to The Lowdown, a podcast recorded at Sigma Kappa National Headquarters by Alex Green and Sarah Goodwin. We'll focus on topics like health, wellness, fraternity and sorority community, higher education, and life skills that women need in all stages of their lives. We'll also feature stories from inspiring, empowering, and ambitious Sigma Kappas. Tune in every other week for a new episode to help drive your personal growth forward. Welcome to The Lowdown, Kelly. We're so glad to have you. Uh, Let's just get started. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, how long you've been doing it? I've heard that you are kind of the real-life Olivia Benson, so if you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. So um, thanks for having me on the show, first and foremost. Uh, But my name's Kelly Harrison. I'm a senior special agent with U.S. Homeland Security Investigations. Um, It's a directorate within the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency of Homeland Security. And a lot of times people hear ICE or Immigration and Customs Enforcement and spaz out a little bit, assuming it's all deportation. So um, that is something that is a function of ICE. But um, HSI or Homeland Security Investigations is the investigative directorate within ICE. Um, We do have some immigration enforcement authorities the same as the FBI does for that matter, but um, our primary goal is the investigation of complex and transnational criminal investigations. Um, so we're the actually the, the, the largest investigative arm for Homeland Security. Um, we do a variety of things um, like drug trafficking, money laundering, transnational gang enforcement, um, what I'm assigned to work is child exploitation, cyber crimes, and human trafficking. And it's what I've worked on for the last 10 years of my federal career. Um, So I'm assigned in in the Charlotte field office um, to do primarily the human trafficking and child exploitation. And so what I mean by child exploitation is it has to have some kind of foreign or international nexus to it. And so people a lot of times think that that means that I'm traveling abroad all the time, which is possible. We we do um, have jurisdiction overseas as well when a U.S. citizen is involved over um, in another country. But the internet is actually affecting interstate and foreign commerce because it's the World Wide Web, right? Um, So World Wide Web, the internet, that affects everybody. You could be chatting with somebody on a social media app who lives in Bangladesh and um, end up trading child pornography images or um, trying to coerce some child that lives here in the United States into producing those types of images. Um, So we end up investigating those kinds of crimes. So why have you been called the real life Olivia Benson? Um, That actually came from a case that I worked a few years ago. Um, The little girl, kind of what I was um, talking about just a minute ago, uh, a little girl, well, a a young lady, um, a teenager was chatting online with people and, um, and that's what they do. That, that's no blame, zero blame for her. 
Um, we kind of talked about internet safety practices during the course of me talking to her later, but um, kind of the new world and what teenagers do, but she was chatting online with someone. Um, she thought it was just being flirty and fun and it ended up being a real bad guy, like an actual predator who does this pretty much full time. And he lived in the UK. So the United Kingdom's police ended up telling us about him actually collecting all these images from her as well as other child victims around our country um, that were sexually explicit images. And he'd been kind of extorting all these children, telling them that if they didn't keep producing images of themselves, um, nude images, sexually explicit images, that he would post them somewhere publicly, that he would tell their parents and their schools about it. And so that naturally makes a child afraid, right? And so a lot of times what happens is that kid keeps producing it, hoping this guy will finally get satisfied and get enough of that stuff and then move on somewhere else and leave them alone. And a lot of times the kid's just too mortified to let anybody know about it. Or at least when they do, a lot of times bad things have already happened. You know, a lot of those images have been traded and put on the internet. So in this case, the young lady, um, I show up at her house and I'm talking to her and she's, you know, obviously upset about it. It's, it's something that I go through with a lot of these kids, but I'm kind of walking her through the process and, and telling her, you know, this is just, we can, we can make this okay and it's going to be okay. And she finally decided to tell me, she was like, you're my personal, like Olivia Benson through all of this. So it was really cute and it kind of, um, kind of stuck with me all these years. Yeah. And it should. Yeah. I love that. So this work you do is very heavy, but it's obviously very important. I mean, we need people like you. How did you become interested in this field? Is that what you went to school for at Lenora Ryan University? How did you get interested in this? Did you think this is what you were going to be when you grew up? No, not at all. So when I was in kindergarten and the teacher asked me or asked the whole class to draw a picture of what we wanted to be, I drew a picture of a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. Oh. <laughs> My mom has kept that to this day because she thinks it's funny that I drew a picture of a cheerleader and grew up to be a girl that carries a badge and a gun. Mm -hmm. That should be on your office. You should really frame that and put it in your office. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, no, I actually, when I, I went to Lenore Ryan, go theirs, and um I actually majored in biology and psychology thinking I wanted to go in the medical field. Um, so through high school, I'd actually graduated. When I graduated from high school, I actually graduated with a certified nursing assistant licensure also, kind of did a, a dual enrollment thing and was really certain that I was going to be either a medical doctor or a physician assistant. And so most of my college time was focused toward going into either med school or PA school later. Um, and my senior year, I got interested in law enforcement and did an internship with the local police department instead and went home during spring break of my senior year and said, hey, mom, I think I'm going to go to the police academy instead. And that went over really well. Um, <laughs> my mom was actually really supportive of it. She was like, do what makes you happy. Yeah. And um, from then on, you know, it was kind of, you know, history. Graduated and ended up in, in law enforcement all these years. So 19 years later, here I am. Wow. wow. So you were a police officer before you were an investigator then? I, I was a state probation and parole officer. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I did that for eight and a half years. I had a caseload that had sex offenders and fugitives, convicted felons, as well as some first time type, type of thing, you know, first time offenders that, you know, that, that were just put on probation to, um, as an alternative to jail or whatever, but did that for, you know, several years and got interested in a federal career, wasn't afraid to move and, and 
do what I wanted to do with that. Kind of wanted to get outside the box, do something bigger, and um, applied to the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS, cool TV show. (laughs) Applied there, applied to the FBI, and applied to ICE, Homeland Security Investigations. HSI called first and had a seat for me, and here I am 10 years later. So are there like positions that open up and then you apply for them or you just send in your name to the FBI, the NCIS, and they just decide who to bring on? So it depends on the agency. Some do this a little different um, or everybody has kind of a different process, really. Um, So HSI, you have to wait for their for them to have an opening available on USAjobs.gov. And that's where most federal employment um, where you go to apply and you can see what vacancies there are without, you know, throughout the United States government. Um, So you have to apply there. It always helps to have your resume in with a recruiter. Most special agent in charge offices for HSI have a recruiter who's usually an agent and just handles recruitment duties as a collateral type of thing. And it's always good to have a resume in with that recruiter, maybe go by and and shake hands and do a meet and greet. Um, If you're working already in law enforcement somewhere, whether you're a sworn officer or not, even if you're working in victim services at a department somewhere, or you're working as an intelligence analyst somewhere, it's still all great experience. So, you know, but it's still good to go by uh, that local office and get to know people so that they kind of can give you the real scoop on what a realistic day is like as an agent, because it's not like the movies or the TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. So when you applied, did you know that you were going to go into trafficking? No, not at all. So it's kind of the, the buzzword with federal agent work is that you're at the needs of the agency at all times. So you, you come into this um, agency or any other agency for that matter, and they assign you where they need you at the time. They sometimes take into account your background and your skill sets that you bring. But a lot of times you're for a lack of better terms, you're a warm body and they need a seat to fill somewhere. So they put you there. So you've been in the trafficking area all 10 years that you've been there? Yeah. So I've worked human trafficking, um, worksite enforcement, financial crimes, but all of those have generally had a nexus to human trafficking the entire time, as well as child exploitation. So after you received Sigma Kappa's Colby Award at convention last summer in 2018, you mentioned that you had just solved a case following that. Can you tell us a little bit about the case? Um, well, it wasn't really solving the case, but more so got the lead. Okay. I came back from convention either that Sunday or Monday. I can't remember what day it ended, but whatever day convention ended, got back to work and it was either the very next day or the day after that, it was very, very soon, like the dust hadn't even settled. And I got called out to help a local police department with a forced labor case that ended up being a very good um, human trafficking case that's still in an ongoing investigation stage. So there's not a whole lot that I can talk about on the federal side, but I can tell you like the, the public news release is that the police department um, was able to make two forced labor arrests later that week. Um, and we were able to rescue one victim um, of a, a form of human trafficking that week. Okay. Can you tell us about any of your past cases that have been more interesting or... Um, they all sound really interesting. Yeah, though, really. truthfully, but maybe more self-fulfilling or that you just felt really good about once it ended or were really long, just something that sticks out to you as... Sure. Yeah. So um, probably the largest case that I've ever worked... Um, went to a federal trial in August of 2014, but um, me and my one of my main partners that I work with is an FBI agent, 
um, good friend of mine, great partner, great legendary agent. Um, we worked together for about four years tracking this guy down who was a pimp in the domestic United States. He was operating 26 different women and young children across five states um, and using the Internet to buy and sell and trade them for commercial sex acts um, in the United States. Tracked him down across five states once we had the federal arrest warrant in hand. This was after, again, four years of investigating him and collecting evidence, slowly building a case against him. And um, we're able to track him down to Tampa, Florida, where we used um, our resources with HSI and FBI and the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office and Tampa Police to um, get this guy out of the hotel room at 1030 at night in Tampa. Um, and there was also three victims of sex trafficking in the hotel that we were able to rescue at that time, too. Um, he ended up going to trial August of, of 14, um, and he was sentenced. Sentencing doesn't happen at the same time as the trial does in federal court the way it does in state court. Um, so he was sentenced later on in May of 16. It, it, it took a while. <laughs> um, May of 16 to a life sentence. Wow. So he's, he's serving the rest of his life in federal prison. So were you able to get a track of those other women that were part of his circle or that were involved in that or force? I get not involved. So there but. was 26 total. Um, I wish I could tell you that all 26 had been able to keep in touch with us or wanted to keep in touch with um, law enforcement and our victim and witness services people, but most have not um, just by nature of their their trauma and their uh, their lifestyle they they've not done that um but a few of them have and so those are those are the people that we can say that we've positively impacted um and saved and helped them help them move on to something maybe more um useful in in their in their lives and more holistic to their lives to help them so some of them have moved on out of the sex trade and um certainly out of being you know, exploited and victimized. So now they're working in gainful employment somewhere. They're working on degrees. I've been to high school diploma, uh, high school graduations rather to college graduations of some of them. It's, it's always really, really fulfilling to, to see them be able to move on and do something more positive. So in this type of work, I'm, sure the highs are super high when you can catch the bad guy and help these women, but I'm sure that there are also plenty of lows when a lead doesn't pan out or you aren't able to help someone that you were trying to. How do you deal with that, with the lows that are present in this type of work? Oh, man. Um, yeah, I mean, because there's, to be honest, there's a lot more lows than there are um, good outcomes, unfortunately. Um, it, but it's, it's something that over time that you learn to kind of accept because you can't as, as the agent, I mean, of course I get, you know, invested in the time and the resources and I get invested in their life and wanting the best for a victim um, or even the witnesses for that matter. Even the witnesses are sometimes just heart wrenching stories, even if they aren't the one that actually was victimized, but because they were just around that situation, it's crazy. Um, but I just, I learned to not take it personally um, and to try and put a, you know, a good separation between that. This is the job. I can't save everybody. It's kind of um, something you have to learn as you mature in any type of law enforcement profession. If you're dealing with victims of any type of crime that you, you can't take on their burdens as your own. Um, so in a way I have to kind of um, 
separate it out and say, I can only do what I can do for a person and I can only do my best every day in my casework. And that has to be enough and I have to keep moving forward. So when you were on this four year, um, just tracking and investigating on this case, what was that like? Because when you're watching, I don't want to compare it to shows, but that's all I have to compare it to. So, you know, they start and they end a case in an hour or 45 minutes. So it's not that fast. So are you working multiple cases at a time? Because how could someone take up four years, eight hours a day, or I'm sure more than that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It's it's more than eight hours a day most of the oh. time. Like, I, I feel like my job never really stops because um, I'm, I'm not at my office very often. Like I'm, I'm there when I need to be because of like, if I need a secure line to do certain things or meetings and, and whatnot, but I work in the field. I cover 22 counties of North Carolina, as well as go where I need to go for my cases throughout the United States or even abroad. So I travel a lot. I work out off of a laptop. I work off of, you know, out of my car, I work wherever, you know, I need to. Um, but I, I have multiple cases at a time. Um, the, the case that I was talking about that took the four years, um, I had multiple cases that I went through while that one was being investigated. So it's not like in the movie Criminal Mind or in the TV show Criminal Minds mm-hmm. where they work. It's like this entire team of agents from the FBI who work together on that one case. And then 40 minutes later, they've all solved it. Mm-hmm. It's really not that way in real life. Most of the time, you know, I can I have my squad of of men and women who are agents that I can pull from when I need assistance, but we all have our own cases that we're all working simultaneously. And so when you need help, you pull each other in, but then you all kind of go back your separate ways. And that's where having really good partnerships with our local and state and federal agencies come in handy. So um, like if I know I'm going to be in a certain County on Thursday, I know, or hopefully I know someone with that local police department or sheriff's office or somebody with the state bureau of investigation that can meet me there and maybe help work with me on that case. And that way it doesn't take so much of the resources away from HSI for that day because they probably have something going on too. So you don't even have a partner that goes along with you and riding out, ride around your car. (laughs) I can't, I don't have anything else to pull from. (laughs) No, no, it's, it's a very independent job. It's not like in the movies, like probably the closest thing to a day-to-day partner I ever had was for about a a five-year period. My FBI partner that worked with me on that longer term case, um, where we saw each other, not every day, but most days, because that case kind of did consume a lot of our time for that all of that time. Um, so every now and then we would be you know, apart. He would have things going on and I would have other things going on too. But, you know, we, a day-to-day thing, we probably were jumping in each other's cars and heading off somewhere, kind of like in a TV show. But most of the time, this job is working very, very independently and being able to make your own decisions, being able to, to make your own judgment calls, finding your own resources, knowing what resources HSI or other agencies have to use. So, it, it requires you to have a lot of um, proactive ability and ability to think on your feet and be able to be alone. Like your the ability to just go out and do what you need to do without somebody holding your hand. Yeah. So uh, when you get a case, where do you even start? Because obviously, guys, I'm going to reference it again. <laughs> on the TV shows, it's like, oh, they have a person that, le- you know, it's, there's always that person and there's a lead. And where do you start? Is it do you kind of have like your group that you can start with and you know where to go? Or where do you even like with this four year guy, how do you even find these leads to keep chasing him? 
Oh my gosh. So it, it completely depends. Some of these leads come in through our national hotline. So if you go to ice.gov, there's um, a phone number as well as an online portal where people can report suspicious activity. Um, also, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children receives leads, and those come to the FBI and to HSI, so we'll get those as well. And then the Polaris Project, which is the National Human Resource Center for Trafficking, or I'm, I'm totally flubbing up um, what their, their little acronym stands for, but they're the human trafficking hotline for the nation. Well, we'll get leads from them. Sometimes I'll work undercover operations and it won't be off of a lead. It'll be where I've worked something undercover and found the bad guy myself. <laughs> um, so it's, it just completely depends. And I wish that I had a Garcia like on criminal minds to run all this stuff for me. We do have intelligence analysts, but they're not quite a Garcia. Um, they're, it's a little bit different from that but they they're a great resource as far as if i need um the help getting subpoenas put together if i need a driver's license of a photo from a dude over in another state or get getting things like that that part of criminal minds is kind of accurate that we can get it and we have people that can get that information but it's not fast the way garcia gets it done and um it's it's not quite as streamlined i wish <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I wouldn't be able to handle the pace of it, knowing that it's, you know, it takes four years and it takes a long time to get leads. It takes a long time to do this stuff. Um, I'm very much a 45-minute show type of person. So. <laughs> I'm going to do the four years, the four-year-long case. No, I, I get it. I get it. And there's always kind of that air of mystery about my job, you know, or, or like any any special agent's job. Like, what what do you guys do? Like, is it really like in that movie? And sometimes yes, and sometimes no, but it's it's a great job. It's the best job I think I could have ever picked or gotten lucky to be able to get, for that matter. So, because um, it's a pretty competitive process to get um, a position as a special agent in any of the federal agencies. But um, I, I love it every day. There's bureaucracy and days that I'm just kind of rolling my eyes. But um, overall, I feel really, really blessed and glad to do what I do. Yeah, so... I wanted to ask you, I kind of wanted to hear another story because I just think they're so interesting, especially, I mean, there's so many cop shows out there. So obviously it's a hot topic. Do you have any other stories where it's been another, like, I'd like to end with a positive, a positive story. I like the positive endings. Yeah. So I can tell you about this case and um, what I can do after done talking I can send you some links so that if you want to post up with the podcast link later you have links to like the the Department of Justice's press releases about these cases you want if people want to read about them later so there was a case um the the pimp the tra the sex trafficker's name is Kenwani Tate and he received a 40-year sentence in federal court last January um so I can talk about you know everything that was publicly released since it's a done case um, but he had been uh, trafficking a young girl, 14 years old at the time here in Charlotte. Um, she'd been a, a runaway, a chronic runaway, um, from the state of North Carolina was a ward of the state and, um, which is it, kind of a common occurrence in domestic sex trafficking that you end up with a lot of chronic runaways and young girls and boys who the system has failed them in some way. They're vulnerable already because of they've been marginalized according to how they grew up or their circumstances. And so they're looking for some sense of security. And Kiwani Tate was the 
a masterful predator who knew exactly what these young girls and young boys look for. And that's somebody who's stable, who's going to take care of them, who's going to make promises to them. And all they have to do in exchange for that is perform commercial sex on eight to 10 and 12 men a day. But then he'll make sure they're taken care of at the end of the night. And that's the way it's it's a very dysfunctional viewpoint, but that's the way it's seen in domestic sex trafficking uh, by, by the pimp, by the trafficker. And so um, he found this girl who'd run away from home and was staying in hotel rooms, just whoever would, was willing to give her somewhere to stay. And he um, put her under his employment for a course of about six months. We were able to rescue her um, with the help of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. Um, she is doing great. Um, she testified in trial and it was one of the bravest things I've ever seen because he had been, um, harassing her, um, trying to use his family to get to her to not come to court and testify against him. Um, it, it, it was a lot for her to go through. And she was 16 at the time that she had to take the stand against him in court. And it was really impressive. And that, that case, like I said, he was sentenced last January. So trial had been in early 2017. Um, since then, she has moved on. She's working on a college diploma right now. Um, she has a, a really good job while she's working to get her degree, and she's doing fantastic. And she stays in touch with me as well as a case manager who has been helping her along. So she just got a car. So they helped um, get her a car. So she's got a little car to get herself to work and back now. And she's on the right track. So she she's really like a great story to probably um, say that those those things can happen. And it's not, it's not just the work of law enforcement. Um, like we were talking about in our pre-call um, before we did this recording that it's really a holistic approach that HSI takes um, with any kind of exploitation related case that we involve social workers and nurses and mental health professionals and general case managers and some of the nonprofit agencies around. Um, it's amazing how many not not-for-profit agencies exist in America who um, their sole purpose is to help victims of domestic violence or sex trafficking or any of those things. So they're not necessarily coming from a government side of all of this, which can kind of be a turnoff sometimes for girls that have been involved in the life, involved in forced prostitution or, or things of that nature. They, the last thing we want to see a lot of times is a cop or a social worker. But if you put in front of them some lady who has been in the life herself, got out of it, and now runs a not-for-profit, that, that young lady tends to believe what she's told and, and wants help from that person. So um, it works out well for us to have those partnerships with all these different agencies. So Lowdown listeners probably don't know that before we do these interviews, we send kind of a pre-survey to get some questions to help build what we want to talk about. And one of them was something that you're most proud of. And we were pretty surprised by your answer because it was kind of work-life balance is something that you're proud of when you can accomplish that, which, I mean, it makes sense. In a job like this where you said you're not working eight-hour days, you're working so much longer, and it's something that you have to take home every night and it's heavy work, I totally get that work-life balance is something to be proud of. So can you talk about how you get work-life balance from a job like this? How do you maintain that? Right. So, um, yeah, I figured it might be a little bit of a different um, answer that you got on your survey, but it's really important. And it's it's a journey more more so not to sound too cheesy, but this this job, it's something that our senior managers, our senior leadership constantly enforce. So the, the director of HSI was actually just in Charlotte last Friday and had a town hall with all of the agents that work in North and South Carolina. And he ended with 
the, the, the same message that we get on a pretty regular basis is that we have to make sure we take care of ourselves. We have to make sure that we take time for our family, our friends, and not let the job consume us because um, it's easy for it to do. Um, it's easy for it to happen that you end up just working all the time because it won't go away. Like it's there tomorrow. It'll be there later on after I get off the phone with you. It's still there. My phone will still ring. There's still emails. There's still stuff I've got to get done. And um, you have to, as an agent, and as you mature in, in, into your agent role, it's really important to learn to say no or learn when to take that break and go, you know what? It will be there tomorrow. It's okay. Go have dinner with your family. And um, it's, it's a hard process. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie that there's days where I, I do not have it. Like it's my work consumes me. I get up and I work. And the next thing I know, I've got to sleep again. And then, you know, other days it's like, okay, you know what? I have some room to breathe today. So instead of choosing to be here for an additional three or four hours working on this, I've got breathing. I'm going to do what's smart and I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go take a walk outside in the fresh air. I'm going to go hang out with people who are not cops, who are not jaded by society and, and let some school teachers tell me about their goofy kids and why their jobs are what they are and some, something different. I'm, I always choose to make sure that I do something different and that I'm not around just a bunch of agents all the time. Mm-hmm. Do people ever ask you, what are some good, because you're giving these women after you rescue them from sex trafficking, like internet tips. I feel like the, like, the moms listening are probably having heart palpitations of all the scary. Yeah. yeah she's a mom. All the scary so. things that can happen when you're on the internet. I mean, the apps that are out there and the black, is it black internet? Black market? Dark web. Dark web. Thank you. <laughs> That's out there. What? what? Well, I'll, I'll tell you as you mom, as you as a mom and all the other moms out there, your, your teenagers, it would be really, really impressive and rare if you're, for example, 14 year old knows how to access the dark web. That it's not easy to get to. It's um, there's a little bit involved in, in being able to get there. Um, but it's not just the dark web. It, it's really important with all of the apps that kids have now. Um, Snapchat, Pick Messenger, and all of those. I've had cases on those. I mean, every time I see a new app created that's like new and improved and cater toward kids I'm like oh that's where the predators are going to be because anytime that you say oh this is going to be based toward children that's what predators are going to be involved into mm-hmm. um but it's it's just to me what I tell parents um and unfortunately when I talk to a parent it's because something bad has happened I do try to get out and do outreach at some of the schools every now and then to try and do some preventative things mm-hmm. um preventative tips um, I use a lot of the tips that I give are the same ones that you can find on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They have a really, really good um, NetSmarts program that's age appropriate. You can pick which um, age level, age range that you want to use, and you can actually put your kid in front of a computer and it'll play video games with them. And that video game actually across the, you know, the course of the game teaches them safety habits or things to say yes and no to or things they should and shouldn't do. Um, but it's just a matter of, as a parent, to, to monitor um, cell phone usage because that little cell phone is a powerful, powerful thing. And you put it in the hands of a 10-year-old and your thought as a mom or a dad is, well, this, this is the way that she can get a hold of me if something happens or soccer practice ends early. I want her to be able to reach me. That's you as a parent. That's the 
the common sense thing. What your 10 year old is hearing is, Ooh, I can get free Wi-Fi basically everywhere now. And even if it takes my data plan away, I still have Wi-Fi or I can use my friend's phone to text and use an app. So, and they just want to explore. Kids are just doing what kids do and they're being curious and they want to kind of test the boundaries and see, see what's out there. Cause we all talk about the internet all the time. So therefore they get curious about it too. It's just important to assume that your kid is being curious and to make sure that you're monitoring what they do. Never, never let them lock a phone. The minute your kid takes, puts a password on something and won't give you access, the phone should be taken away. That is your phone, mama. You paid for that phone. Amen. I agree. Yes. (laughs) Do you have any tips for, I mean, my kids do not have phones. My oldest is only five, but I have told my husband, and I completely agree on this, that it was like the phone is ours. When we, when he does get a phone, you know, when he's like, you know, 18 or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And that every single night we'll look through it. But you hear about the apps that aren't really what they seem like. It's like, looks like a calculator app, but it's actually a different app. And these ghost apps, I don't know if it's a ghost app. Snapchat has the ghost and then it goes away. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So yeah, those things are out there. There's a calculator app that's not as popular anymore, really. I still see it occasionally, but it looks, if you're just like looking at their screen, it'll look like it's just the calculator function of the phone. But it's actually when you click that app, there'll be a password for it. And it's really a vault for them to be able to hold data and chats and pictures and all kinds of stuff. And it's not really a calculator at all. Um, But when you open it, it'll look like a calculator. But if you punch in a certain password, like a certain number password, it it opens up the app for you. So it'll look. Even if you open the app, it's still going to look like a calculator. Yes. That's so scary. Yeah. But they're, to be honest, I don't see it used as much because they don't need to. What they do, like a lot of things is having a Finsta. It's not just a matter of their Instagram account because they have one that mom and dad know about or about, you know, it's like their legit one, they'll call it. The one that has like their not, not sensitive type stuff on there. Like they're just pretty pictures. But then it's a matter of their two and three and four fake Instagram accounts where they post their emotions and it can get kind of into their dark place. Sometimes we all, you know, when you have the blues and you get depressed, you deal with it. Sometimes they put it into an Instagram account. They put it there and they only have certain friends that are allowed to see that when they lock it down, but it'll sometimes be things that are maybe on, you know, a little on the edgier side, or they'll use their fake Instagram account to talk to complete strangers or to use it for some more inappropriate reasons. And that that's where they end up getting in a little bit of trouble, maybe over their head. And before you know it, I'm there and hopefully helping them out. How can you keep track of that as a parent? You can't, you can't don't try. I think it's just you can only do what you can do. Yeah, it's just really, it's most I would think it's about the education part to your kids just yes. It's a matter of un, like knowing your own child mm-hmm. and um not not giving not giving them that technology too soon because that, that's what I see is it's it feels as a mom it feels so convenient to give an eight-year-old an iPhone and say, use this to call me when soccer practice is over early so I know to come get you. And that just seems so easy and innocent to us. But that that iPhone has more power in it than than everything. 
and it has a way to connect them to everybody. You know, so we, or I grew up, I'm 40, almost 41 years old. And I grew up with this whole, like in school, that stranger danger, like don't approach strangers. Don't go get in a car with a stranger, this kind of stuff. Well, we didn't have cell phones then. And now with everybody having a cell phone, we've left the stranger in our house. Mm-hmm. That phone connects us to any and everybody. So it's great. It's connected me to you guys today. Right. Um, whenever I need to talk to our advisory board for Virginia Tech, go Epsilon, Epsilon Chi. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. But when it's used for, you know, by a teenager who's not really like, they think that they're in control, but it's some bad guy on the other end who's got the real control mm-hmm. and they're more experienced because that's what they, that's all they know how to do is pre, you know, be a predator against kids. Mm-hmm. So you just have to be careful as a mom, like to know when, when is this child really ready to have a phone in their hands and what are the rules that I'm going to lay down for this phone? Like it shouldn't be in their bedroom after, you know, when it's time to go to bed, there should be no phone in their bed. Like it's not, a, it's not enough to go, okay, mom, I'm going to turn this thing off at, you know, but I'm going to leave it in the room. No, no, no. As soon as you're asleep, they're going to be on that phone and then they're not able to get up the next morning to go to school. And that doesn't mean that they're talking to predators. Nine times out of 10, they're probably chatting with their friends and there's nothing going on, but they've lost sleep that night. And, you know, it's a thing. Um, And the more that type of thing happens, that becomes a habit and they end up getting more curious and more and more curious and they end up talking to somebody that they don't know and that can be a bad situation. So you've been in this industry for, you said, 10 years. That has been a huge technological shift. What has that been like? Um, a whirlwind. Uh, our our cyber crimes guys, we, we have a program in HSI that I got to sidetrack and talk about, and then I'll come back full circle. We have this awesome program called the Hero Corps, where we take military veterans who have been wounded. Um, they're like combat veterans. We take, they've been wounded, they're medically discharged from the military service, and they may have already had some cyber training as part of their job function in the military, or maybe not, but we train them in computer forensics, and we we put them back into service with us so that they're helping solve child exploitation and human trafficking, and so it, it's phenomenal. Um, we end up working with them, I mean, they my office is across the hall from their lab where they're just in there mining for information and helping find ways, the metadata under pictures to figure out who that child is in that picture. So we can go knock on the door and save the kid. It's, It's really amazing technology. They're, they're the ones who are constantly in training somewhere because as soon as a phone comes out, that phone is actually outdated technology. The way research and development works, the minute we have that brand new iPhone 10 in our hand, Apple's already been working on the next one for months by the time that one makes its way to the store, right? So it's the same thing for us that we have to find um, the next thing out there that we have to be ahead of. And it's, it's a struggle. It's, it's real. It's real. Cause there's a new app invented every day. I mean, you know, kids can create apps now. <laughs> so true. Mm-hmm. Circling back to not so much the job, but what do you like to do when you aren't working? You said you like to be with people who aren't agents, be with people who aren't in your field. Do you have a dog? What hobbies do you have outside of working? Well, I'm an advisor for Sigma Kappa. Um, and that came about because of work-life balance needs. I actually, I got to a point in 2000, the end of 2014, after that massive trial that I had, the huge case, 
I was like, I am worn out. I'm burnt out. I feel like I've just spent the last four years of my life in, in a chaotic state. Um, and like, I've got to find something else to do that takes my mind off of work. And Stigma Kappa put out an email. I had kept current, you know, as an alumni for all that time. Um, but they put out an email asking for advisors or people that might be interested in being an advisor. And so I filled it out and sent it off. And then, I don't know, sometime in early 2015, April Doctor with District 2. You like all my shout outs? That I- <laughs> They're going to love it. <laughs> April Doctor gives me an e- sends me an email and says, hey, are you still interested in being a Sigma Kappa advisor? Because, you know, we should set up a call. And um, so I started being an advisor for Theta Mu Chapter, UNC Charlotte. Um, and it's just, it's kind of, you know, added on here and there over the, over time. I've been an advisor with Epsilon Alpha, the Little Ryan Chapter. Um, I'm currently only advising for Epsilon Chi, Virginia Tech. Um, love, love every single bit of my time being an advisor. Um, that made it even more cool, you know, like being at convention and recognizing yeah. that, you know, people there already. So that, that made it a lot of fun. Um, other than that, I like to do photography kind of semi-professionally. Oh, wow. um, I've, you know, every now and then I'll do an event or do like a portrait for somebody or, you know, something like that. But a lot of times it's just me playing around and doing like nature and architectural type photography. Um, I grew up on a farm with horses and that kind of stuff. And I still have a horse that's boarded with one of my cousins. And so when I go visit home to check on mom and all that stuff, I'll go visit my horse and ride horses and that kind of stuff. Wow. I don't know anyone that has a horse. That's, that's amazing. (laughs) So normally we end the podcast with kind of advice going forward. I feel like you've given so much advice. So I would just love to hear kind of, Instead of that, what's the most rewarding part of your job? Oh, um, the success stories. Um, the young lady in the Kenwani Tate case, when she graduated from her nursing assistant class, I went to her graduation and um, it was to, to know her history and know that just a year and a half prior, she had been sold in the sex trade. And a year and a, just in a year and a half, she had gone from being victimized in one of the cruelest ways you can be mm-hmm. to overcoming it, making a perfect score on her GED and graduating from a nursing assistant program and to let her, you know, watch her walk across her little stage at the community college and get this little certification and diploma was um, be the only one in the room that knew her real story that that made it super rewarding to me Mm -hmm. Um, because she, she didn't have any other family. Like she doesn't have anybody else. So it was, it was me and a a social worker that's known her case for years that were there for her that day. And um, just to be on the inside of that and know her story and watching, because that that's heroic effort to me. You know, that's somebody that can really overcome. Mm-hmm. So that that's probably one of the most rewarding things that's ever happened. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, we enjoyed having you on. This yeah. was great to hear your stories and hear your life. It's, it's very different than a lot, I could say, of our listeners and yeah. a lot of just... Definitely uh, different women. than ours. Yes, so. very different. So thank you for being on. We'll have those the links to the... Um, Different cases that you mentioned, yes. if they're available on the show notes page, um, link to the HSI career site, even if anyone 
Yeah, and internet tips for kids. We're going to put that up there mm -hmm. too because that's something I would click on. <laughs> but thanks for being on, Kelly. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me. It's been an honor to be a part of this. Like I said, even at convention, it was crazy, a crazy, crazy honor to receive that award. And I, I hope that I always do it justice. You are. Yeah. You are. Thank you.